love. Some would say it took a backseat when the pandemic forced us apart. As a family-run and proudly Canadian-owned company, Charm Diamond Centres saw the need to bring us together with tales of love and created the Canadian Love Map podcast. Since then, we've shared hundreds of real, uplifting stories that prove love conquers all. So thank you for listening. We couldn't do it without you. And remember, love starts here. What the world needs now is love. More love. Stars literally aligned. He's always been the one. There's someone out there for everyone. I'm Nancy Regan, your host on the Canadian Love Map. We are on a journey to uncover and share love stories of all kinds. He's never forgotten to bring me flowers. We're hoping we're going to give a little good news to this world. Even in these dark times, the life continues to go on. It's all about compassion, devotion, adventure, and of course, love. Everybody needs somebody. Everybody needs love. This is the Canadian Love Map. Well, love is the most important thing. The greatest honor of my entire career is entertaining the military. I often think about the fact that they charged up hills, risking their lives so that I could stand on a stage and have the freedom to say the things that I wanted to say. To be able to bring them some laughter, there is, there, that is the greatest honor of my life. Today's love story belongs to Lars Kellio from, well, everywhere. This Canadian comedian has given the gift of laughter to audiences all over the world, including six military tours. He's worked with such luminaries as Joan Rivers, Jeff Foxworthy, and Bob Saget. And he's logged so many miles behind the wheel of his beloved Jetta that he's traveled to the moon and back. His fuel is passion, generosity, and the pure love of performance. This is the Canadian Love Map. Hey, Lars, how are you? Never been better. You? Well, I'm just ecstatic to have you on the show. And we're talking about love, as you know, on this podcast. And there are layers of it with your story. And apparently, you're a pretty big fan of uh, our platform talking about passion and love. Absolutely. It, it's going to sound silly. It sounds cliche or uh, contrived to say that I love people who are passionate about the things that they do. One of my favorite quotes was a great comedian named Mike Wilmot quoting a jazz musician. So this is broken telephone game. But the quote was, um, there are day people and there are night people and day people work all day just to give their money to night people. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> and I, I, I interpret the quote, and I talked to Mike Wilmot about this. We were just doing a festival together last week. I interpret the quote that a night person is anybody who does what they love. You could be yeah. a carpenter who just loves woodworking. You could be a ballroom dancer. You could be a truck driver. If you love that thing you do, when you wake up in the morning and you can't wait to do that thing you do, you're a night person. And the day people who work all day and toil and then pay your bills, you know, pay your salary, whether it's coming to a comedy show or, you know, listening to radio or watching television, any of those things. I love the idea that these people who are passionate about the things that they do and 
your whole show is based on the love of all of those things. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, working out or, or driving a car to faraway places for the past <laughs> 20 years. Speaking of which, there's no shortage of passion on your end of this connection. And I want to rewind to the beginning. Tell me about what your childhood was like. We're getting right into therapy, Lars. Oh, well, excellent. Uh, I went, I was born in Northern British Columbia. And just after I had turned like six years old, my parents had a hit song. They had a song that charted on Billboard, uh, 1980, 1981. It charted on Billboard. And I realized that this is mostly audio. So I'll post this to my Instagram. You can find it on my Instagram. But it's a picture of my parents in the 80s with what they did. Oh, my uh, They were a ba band called Columbian Gold Rush. And once the the song was a hit, I mean, there was real circuits back in the 80s. You played six days a week because there wasn't DJs. There wasn't a lot of... Nobody wanted to listen to a jukebox. It was live music. And from grade one to grade eight, I toured with my parents' band. We were we would sing at weddings and rodeos and sometimes jam sessions on Saturdays, but we weren't allowed in the bars for the most part. And we just, you know, for anybody old enough to remember, the Partridge family or <laughs> just drove around and listened to my parents sing every night. That's incredible. So you had as role models true night people. True night people. That, that's what they did for a living pretty much their whole lives. Yeah. So did that give you a real um, blue sky, like a big open horizon, knowing that, you know, you weren't expected to either be a very predictable profession like a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist? Did you just always feel like the, the world was your oyster and you could do anything you set your mind to? Yeah, there was, we weren't, there weren't in a box. You could really be outside the box with what you wanted to do. I thought I was going to be a musician. I wanted to, I wanted to be on stage. There are pictures of me singing when I was three years old. There's pictures of my mother pregnant drumming with me. She was a drummer until the band started touring and then she played bass. Uh, and I was, grew up on stage, grew up with the microphone in my hand. And I was on stage singing a song called Nobody with my sister. I have a sister who's a year older and my voice broke. So when I hit puberty, I went from being this cute kid who was cute on stage to realizing that I couldn't sing and I couldn't play anything. I tried, I tried guitar and piano and drums and I bass for a little while and I was dreadful. It was music that Gene skipped me. My brother and sister can play everything and I was so bad at it. I think I played my last played. I, I was on stage doing some form of music when I was 20 years old and never got on stage again until I was 26 years old when I started doing stand-up comedy and 20, almost 27. And it's as soon as I got on stage and told some jokes, that was it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I had known that's what I wanted to do my whole life. But thinking that I would follow in my parents' footsteps and play music, I, you know, was so bad at it that it was it was hopeless. It's interesting, you know, I I know a lot of people who are funny, who have a great sense of humor, but they could never go on stage and put that on display because it would be terrifying. But you already had an innate sense of comfort on the stage. Do you think that's part of what uh, caused you to go into comedy? 20 years in comedy, nobody's ever asked me that question. That is an exceptional question. Uh, the answer is absolutely yes absolutely 
without a shadow of a doubt. I, I having a microphone in my hand, and I don't want to say I'm more comfortable on stage, but I think that there's a sense of I know everything's going to be okay here. And for that moment, I remember you, you live in this window that's smaller than a second. The same with doing this job where you're interviewing, where you have to be thinking about the next question, or if you're a comedian, the next joke, or if you're a musician, the next singing, the next line, playing the notes, doing those things. You live in this window where everything else fades away. Yeah. Nothing else is happening in your life but this right now. And living in that window of a quarter of a second, a third of a second of you're thinking about, okay, this is the next joke I'm going to do. How did that one land? The audience is a little flat. So we got to pick up the pacing. You have to, your timing changes with instinct, the instinct yeah. of being on stage 5,000 times, you know, when to jump in, you, you know, when to, you don't want to step on your laughs. You know, it, it's, it becomes instinctual with tons and tons and tons of practice. And before we had started, you mentioned Ron James. Is there a more conversational, funnier person in the world than Ron James? Oh, I don't know if there is. That is one of the greatest, most joyful storytellers of all time. And I would love to live in his brain while he was on stage. I watched him do two hours one night in Edmonton. Start to finish, no opening act, two hours, crushed, la laughs consistently for the entire two hours. And in that little spot, of thinking about where the next thing is going or, oh, that one didn't work as well as it normally does. Maybe I got to change the trajectory a little and go in with a different direction that he was planning on going. Um, it's so magical. So being on stage and living in that window, everything else fades away and everything is okay for that 45 minutes, 60 minutes, 25, however long you're doing that night. So it's, it's the happiest place in the world. Yeah, that's an amazing example. But I think what I hear from you is very much what I tell people about stage presence. You know, people say, what is that mysterious thing or mystical thing called stage presence? It's presence. It's really being completely in the moment. And that's what I'm hearing you describe. And that is an escape in a weird way. It, it's an, it's absolutely an escape. It with Yeah, that's the right word for it. I love it when you see somebody who, and the it factor, you know, the X factor of anything, like why did Ron James get bigger than anybody he started with? Why did he reach the level of the Mike McDonald's and the Derek Edwards and Mike Wilmot's, those comedians who, Kathleen Madigan, I, I've had a chance to tour with her. That stage presence thing, it's, it's certainly the confidence. It's often a subdued, quiet confidence where they know that they command the stage. But that stage presence, when they walk on and everybody in the room can feel the energy change. Right. That is one of my, they, when I, cause I've seen Ron James live, I think three times, but at festivals. And then once where he, I got to see his full show when he walks on stage, runs on stage, the energy changes in the room. And you, you could be at a party with him, I would imagine. And when they walk in, the energy changes. And I you know I'm not a huge aura person or a huge, but. They, they have that stage presence comes from this years of practice, but also it was kind of always there from the beginning. It's, it's always, you know, I think when you started in this business, the reason that everyone's like, well, that person should be doing interviews. That person should be on radio or television. It was there from the beginning. It kind of, hmm. and I, I, so it sounds so cheesy, but when they talk about Michelangelo and they're like, how do you see your creation? He's like, well, when the block of granite shows up, it's already there. I just let it out. Yeah, I just chip away the extraneous stuff and like, I, yeah, I just remove the 
Exactly. It's already there. And it was there with whether musicians or comedians or, or, you know, media people, it's, it's there. You have to want to do it. It is such a thankless and tough road to hoe. It, it, you know, you have to be willing to do it for no money for a really long time before it might one day pay off, but man, is it ever worth it? Yeah, right on. First of all, Ron James is going to be really upset that we talked about him so much. Second of all, <laughs> when did that, when did the funny, as he refers to it sometimes, really start in you? When was the funny discovered by you? Six years old, the first time I heard a joke. The very first time I ever heard a joke. Really? I, yep. I remember after I was six, seven, eight years old, every year for my birthday or Christmas, my parents would get me joke books and I would memorize jokes and I would change the wording of them from the time I, so I collected street jokes from the time I was six or seven years old till the time I was 18. And I memorized somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 street jokes and can still recall most of them. So I loved the laugh. I love the entertaining. I love having people captivated. And I used to have this bet that we would do where if somebody could start a street joke and I couldn't finish it, I'd give you $5. But if I could finish it, you owe me $5. And I never had to pay the $5. Oh my gosh. That's like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory, right? That's how you mm -hmm. get to excellence. It's time spent, it's practice, and, and you put the time in by the sounds of it, but it was driven by passion. Your motivation was because you just enjoyed it so much. That was your engine. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, there's probably a lot of people if they're tuned into this going like Lars Kelly. Oh, I've never even heard of that name. He's been around 20 years. I've never heard of him. And they sometimes hear you on CBC or they'll see you on the comedy network. Okay. I kind of, yeah, I kind of know. <laughs> like I'm sitting next to somebody on a flight. They're like, do I know you from somewhere? Yes. And I was like, do you watch comedy network? And they're like, oh, you're the, yeah, I tell you one, you know, so there's those those little moments. So I'm, I say that as a preface to say, I'm not comparing myself to Wayne Gretzky. When Wayne Gretzky practiced, he did it just because he loved it. There was no other reason. He wasn't, didn't have these dreams of being the greatest in the world, or maybe he did. But when his Walter, <laughs> when Walter told uh, the story, he said, I put a rink in the backyard, not because I was trying to nurture this love of hockey I did it because I was sick of driving him to the rink and I didn't want to have to drive him to the rink anymore. So if I put a rink in the backyard, I didn't have to spend six, seven, eight hours down at the rink every day. And I could watch from the comfort of the kitchen window. I remember being 12 or 13 when A&E's Evening at the Improv came out. So it's the mid 80s. A&E's Evening at the Improv comes out. First time I've seen stand-up comedy that wasn't because I wasn't allowed to stay up for Carson or or any of the late night shows that were on. So there was daytime stand-up comedy. I could memorize a comedian's five-minute or seven-minute show watching it once, and I would go to school and recite it. I would be able to do their acts, and I would act like, hey, what's the deal with, like, I would be doing that. I remember, I uh, believe it was an Adam Sandler joke, and it was one of my favorites to tell. And I didn't, obviously, I wasn't a comedian back then, so I wasn't lifting bits. But he, he has this great joke about Wilt Chamberlain where he says the basketball player Wilt Chamberlain scored a hundred points. Uh, that's a record of a hundred points. And he goes, this is my impression of the opposing team's coach during a timeout. Okay. Okay. Who's covering Wilt? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no one. <laughs> yeah, it's like you, you might want to oh stick gosh. a little closer. And the, yeah. And there's the second part. He goes, this is my impression of Wilt's team during the same time out 
Hey, Wilt, I'm open. <laughs> Pass the ball, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My family drove three hours to see me. Um, oh. So I would just memorize those Annie's Evening at the Improv and then take them to school and do them. And I would just be, as soon as it was on, I would know. I don't even think we had a VCR to record them. And I remember being so enamored, so it just brought me more joy than anything to watch stand-up comedy. And then I, when I finally gave up on being a musician, and then I went, you know, I've always thought about this comedy thing. And May 18th, 2003 was my first ever time on stage. And when I did that show, I remember being on stage and I got the first laugh. And I thought, this has been it the whole time. Yeah. The whole time. And I... I have been the luckiest person in the world. I, 25 countries and toured with Joan Rivers and Bob Saget and Jeff Foxworthy and all of these great, you know, just for laughs. And it's been, it's been a charmed life. It's been, I, I, I can't even believe it. You know, I wake up every day and it's nice that you're familiar with the James Mullingers and the Ron James, because if you know comedians, it's nice. But the average person, people say to me, I've never met a comedian before. And I'm like, me neither. I'm like, when I was growing up, I didn't know any comedians. And the question, when did you know you were going to be a comedian? What? I woke up this morning. It's been my job for 14 years. I didn't know I was going to be a comedian today. Like, it's still, mm. I'm like, who gets to be a comedian? That's the craziest thing in the world. Yeah, and starting out, I, I mean, I know it's been, uh, you've described yourself, I think, as a 20-year overnight success. And at, at the beginning, you know, as much as you loved it, there must have been some tough times. I wonder if doing comedy in the beginning is a little bit like golf. And this is just occurring to me, you know, because golf, people can get so frustrated about it, they can get down, but that one good shot in a round keeps them coming back. And you talk about that, that sweet spot of that first laugh. Is, is there a comparison to be made there? Maybe. I think the, there's a great quote about golf. I don't, I think it was um, Arnold Palmer and he was golfing with a, a media, like a, a reporter, writer, um, journalist or something. And the journalist was getting mad about how bad he was playing and Palmer or whoever, whoever it was in this story, uh, said you're not good enough to get mad at this game <laughs> and if you're not at the driving range six hours a day yeah. if you're not working you know if you don't have a professional coach why are you getting mad just go out and play and have fun i i got lucky and this is uh i've been doing comedy for about a year and i had my heart shattered i i had my heart broken and for the next three years I, and when you mentioned escape, I thought, uh, and I wasn't planning on talking about it, but 2004, I went through a breakup and she's married and has kids. Everything's good now. It's all, it's all great. For the next three years, I got on stage kind of to escape the feeling from that breakup. Wow. And I went and I went and did two or three shows every single night, 2004 to 2007. I didn't take a night off. I worked. I did karaoke nights. I did poetry readings. I did music open mics. I killed myself to be on stage because for that three minutes or five minutes or seven minutes, I was not thinking about that. 
And I remember when I realized I was over it and I looked behind me and the moment feels like that Forrest Gump moment when he's running and he just decides he's, he can stop now. He was like, I'm tired. I think I'm going to go home now. And it was, <laughs> I ran across America again and again and again. And then once I was over it, I kind of looked behind me and I had done 1200 shows and I was a headliner and I use that term loosely, but I was a professional working comic yeah. and it was just escaping from that. And I, you know, I'm grateful for that now because I don't know if I would have been as committed as I was if I didn't have this thing that I was trying to get away from, you know, in a very oh my gosh, Forrest Gump-esque thing. So great. I was just going to say, this is such a perfect example of how sometimes a painful chapter in our past that we resent and, you know, hate when we're going through it, we can look back and go, wow, that served my life so well. It sounds like you owe a thank you note to that woman who broke your heart. <laughs> yeah. And her parents are amazing. Like her parents, I still <laughs> drop off Christmas cards. They're like wonderful, wonderful people. So yeah, you're right. It was pretty lucky. <laughs> I didn't feel like it at the time. We couldn't share the great stories that we do here on the Canadian Love Map podcast without the amazing support of Charm Diamond Centres. They are Canada's largest family-owned jeweler, and they're proud to be putting love on the map. The folks at Charm Diamond Centres are thrilled to be a part of your love story. So visit CharmDiamondCentres.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. When you deliver those cards, are you pulling up in your car? I am. <laughs> okay, so that's my way of segueing into the other great love story in your life. Well, I'm sure there are many, Lars, but I want to talk about silver. And it's not just because that's the color of my hair. Tell me about this crazy love affair with your vehicle. Traveling with my parents every Sunday, I loved watching my dad drive. I loved watching him drive. I would sit over his shoulder and I would just be mesmerized. He would drive and he, he, I would ask him questions about driving. So I always, I was on the road every Sunday for my entire childhood. We would travel to a new town and set up the equipment. And when I quit my day job, uh, Canada Day 2009, I quit my day job. And I knew I would be putting a lot of miles on a car, Western Canada, uh, anywhere in Canada, you travel far. You know, you regularly would drive from Edmonton to Regina, 800 kilometers for one show, Saskatoon, 500 kilometers, Grand Prairie, 500 kilometers, Tumbler Ridge, wherever you're going, Kelowna is a thousand kilometers. So you're driving regularly, you know, any given month, if you're working a lot, uh, between 4,000 and 8,000 kilometers a month is pretty common. And I knew I would need a car that was good on fuel. So 2009, when I quit my day job, I I knew exactly the car I wanted. I had pictured it in my head. I knew when I was going to be trading in my, <laughs> my BMW. <laughs> um, I was trading in a three series BMW. I knew it was going to be a diesel Jetta. So I went to the dealership and looked at a few different cars. And I had in my mind what it was going to look like. And I knew it was going to be silver as a tribute to the Lone Ranger. I was going to say, that makes I, you the Lone Ranger, right? I guess. Yeah. And I 
got the car, drove it off the lot. It either had 28 kilometers on it or 58 kilometers on it. I can look at the bill of sale, but it was brand new. So I drove it off the lot halfway through 2009, brand new Volkswagen Jetta, silver. And I remember thinking, let's put 500,000 kilometers on this. Like, let's see if we can get to 500,000. And after about a year, I realized, I think I can go to 750, like 750,000 kilometers. We could do that. And the car's been running like a top, original engine, original transmission, knock on wood. Are you a mechanic? How do you do nope. this? Nope. Regular maintenance. You know, it's wow. the one thing where it's, you know, my, my biggest possession is the car. So mm -hmm. I treat it well and look after it and maintain it. And at 700,000 kilometers, I tweeted at Volkswagen Canada. I said to them, what do you, what is your recommended service for 700,000? <laughs> and they called the dealership and did a major service. So new timing belt, new filters, new fluids all the way around. So it was close to $3,000. They, and they just messaged the dealership and said, and said, we'll do a major service for them. And for then, free? yeah. Oh, and wow. And then during COVID, we were doing a lot of backyard shows. We had this fire pit comedy is what it's called. So I was able to do a lot of charity work. And it was, you know, there was Food Bank and um, Christmas Bureau of Edmonton and Santa's Anonymous in Edmonton. And we were donating a lot of our shows and then the money was going to them. So we ended up donating over $20,000, but we were doing the show. So I don't really want credit. It wasn't my money that I was donating. It was, we were doing the shows and that other people were donating the money. Sure. That's so, a contribution. Uh, yeah, but I, 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 uh, I'm going to give you credit. Canadian. You don't have to take it. Okay. I'll give it to you. Okay. <laughs> Very un-Canadian to take credit for anything. So I'm like, no, no, don't give me credit. Other people don't. Have um, so I submitted the car for this thing called Volks giving. So every year they take some of their Volkswagen owners and they recognize them and it's on YouTube. It's in a commercial. So they called me and said, we've never had anything like this. At that point, my car was at 719,000 kilometers. And they, so this was October of 2021. And they put my car in a Volkswagen commercial and you drive around and they talk about you and your car. And then you drive through this big banner and then they give you a prize to say thank you. I guess it's a gift to say thank you for being a good customer. And, and most of the people that receive the Volksgiving present are people who have done a lot of work for the community or a lot of you know charity work. And I was just fortunate enough to be a part of that and have a car that's been a dream. So they sent me on an all-expense-paid trip to New York. And it was supposed to be for two people. <laughs> I was... I was single at the time, so they were sending me on a five-day trip, and I, I said, well, "I'm going by myself. Can you make it ten days? Like I'll just <laughs> extend it out because I'm not paying for something. I no, like don't your have another person's flight." And so they said, "When would you like to go?" And I said, "New Year's Eve." So the trip, I stayed in the Knickerbocker Hotel, which is one of the oldest, most historic hotels in New York right in Times Square and had a ticket to watch the ball drop from the rooftop bar called Cloud Nine at the Knickerbocker Hotel. And 2021, going into 2022, this one of the greatest dinners I've ever had, live jazz band walking around playing while you were there. And then you went out onto this rooftop patio 
free drinks, top shelf, anything, champagne on all the tables, and then watch the ball drop and become 2022, <laughs> all because I had a car that I drive to my dream job. It's been wow. like, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how, how you That's end up. That's really great. That kind of, what, what are some of the greatest places the car has taken you? Uh, I, I really like that it's been to north of Whitehorse. There's a place called CarMax. We had done a show there, myself and a comedian named Scott Belford. And Scott and I had done the show in CarMax. So that's as far north. And then you drive south from Whitehorse into kind of the panhandle of Alaska. And so it's been to Alaska. And I, in one year, it went from minus 48 degrees in Fort Nelson, B.C., to Las Vegas, where it was plus 44. So there was a 92 <laughs> degree swing in where it had been. So I think Alaska is really one of the fun ones. It's been to Chicago as far east as Thunder Bay in Chicago. I really do want to get it to Newfoundland. I really want to get it because it's been to Tofino, which is as far west as you can go in Canada. And I wanted to get as far east as you can go. Um, as of today, it's at 817,000 kilometers. Okay, that is and, ridiculous. You're really shaming yeah, the rest of us. Uh, lucky, just absolutely. And a lot of highway miles. So if you're on the highway for all of your miles, it's, I think, a lot easier on the car than stopping and starting. But Lars, maybe it's because the car enjoys the adventures it has with you so much. Maybe that's what it's just not willing to give them up. Is it true that silver has taken you to the moon and back? Yeah, it has. Christmas last year was the day I was coming back from mom's when we returned from the moon. And I wanted, I messaged NASA to let them know. I'm like, hey, uh, it's 384,400 kilometers to the moon. That's the distance to the moon. So we returned from the moon, 768,800 kilometers. And on Christmas day of 2022, I was driving back and I pulled over and took a bunch of pictures and made a little video. So my car has been to the moon and back. We're on our way back to the moon now. So. <laughs> That's great. I was going to ask you about the fact that you've worked with a lot of people, big names, as you mentioned earlier, and the three comedians that I know, you, James, and Ron, have in common that you're really just good people, you know, who are, are not cutthroat. I think a lot of people would think of comedy as maybe a cutthroat business, but I'm starting to think that's not the case because the people I see who are really successful are fantastic people. I think in order to reach the level of a Brent butt from Corner Gas, you had to have been the type of person to send the elevator back down. I think in, in order to be really great, I think you can reach a level of greatness that and I'm not comparing myself to any of these people, just to be perfectly clear. Um, I am. I am. No, no, God, no. Um, so there isn't a sense of competition. One of my best friends, when he started out in comedy, he was just a force. And I remember his name is Sterling Scott. Most people would have heard of him. He's a fantastic, he's like a brother to me. And he was from day one a real force. Like, I mean, he was going to be amazing from day one. And it was so easy for me to recommend him to the showcases. And I didn't do anything for his career other than open the door a smidgen, like this tiniest amount, and he just kicked it open. All I had to do was get him seen by one or two people, and they saw what all of us saw. It's so easy to champion. There's this great comedian named Ryan Short, 
And Ryan had reached, you know, he did a CBC recording and he had done a couple of things and done a few festivals, Hubcap in Moncton. And I, he's such a good friend and he works so hard that I said, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take you with me to Australia. I tour Australia three months a year and I go, we'll sort it out after, we'll book shows after to pay for it. But he's at the point where he should be getting seen internationally because it bumps you up here in Canada if they know you've done the Melbourne Comedy Festival Mm -hmm. and they see you, oh, he's not just a local guy who's headlining Red Deer twice a year. He's a guy who's been to Melbourne, a guy who's done shows in Sydney, a person who's, you know, traveled the world. It's so easy to champion those the, the, any comedians. So there's a wonderful comedy festival called the Great Outdoors Comedy Festival. If people have not heard of the Great Outdoors Comedy Festival, look it up. It is now nationwide. And I'm, we're talking Kevin Hart and Russell Peters, Louis C.K. and Jerry oh, really? Seinfeld. They're booking the biggest named acts in the world. So they were looking for opening acts. <laughs> and I said, I got the perfect, she's going to be great. Uh, and <laughs> I called her a very funny comedian named Katie Westman. Katie Westman is wonderfully funny and she works hard and she does her shows up on time. She's a great, great comic. So I said to her, I'm, I just recommended you for a show. Again, they would go watch your tapes. I'm not taking any credit. And I said, when you get the gig, you owe me a bottle of whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) And, And she called me and she said, there's no way this is real. Yeah. And I said, well, okay, we'll see. And she was opening for Whitney Cummings and David Spade to 5,000 people in Calgary. And she's like, there's <laughs> no way this is real. I'm like, okay. And she bought me the biggest bottle of whiskey you could buy. Like, I didn't want to be, I just oh. want a little one. Um, but championing those people is so easy. You see them right. working hard. You see that they're funny. You see, and to make, if somebody calls you and says, hey, we're looking for somebody from Calgary to host the show, who would you recommend? Well, the hardest working people. There's this yeah. story about the Oilers in the 80s. And they said, they called the farm and they said, we need a player during the playoffs. And the coach said, do you want my best player or do you want my hardest working player? And the coach said, uh, I guess your hardest working player. And they sent up this guy named Kelly Bookberger who went on to win a couple of Stanley Cups and was a captain of the Oilers. You can outwork everybody and be good. You, you can have enough talent that's comparable to everybody else. And it's that one recommendation. It's that one People see your hustle, they see your passion, and they're like, hey, use use Katie, she's great. And she killed it. So they used her in Calgary, and then they liked her so much that she went and opened for Amy Schumer in Edmonton to 4,000 oh people. Oh my gosh, that's mm-hmm. wild. But I love what you say, it's so easy to do that. Like what you did was you cracked open the door for her. She had to, she had to be able to walk through it and hold her own. Yeah. Yeah. And when she says like, hey, thanks for the Amy Schumer, I go, I didn't have anything to do with Amy Schumer. I had nothing to do with that. That was you. You got that because you were good at the first one. It's generosity of spirit that comes from within. And and that shines through Lars in this conversation. And it and I, I just love that. I love seeing it in people. And even your expression, you know, it's so easy to send the elevator back down once you've gone up and it's just send it back down. That's really great. I, I I value that so much in my friends. So I want you to drive your car named Silver out east uh, on your way to Newfoundland. Come and see us in Nova Scotia. But I, I want to ask one last question before we wrap up. And that is, where does the core of comedy 
sort of live in you? What is it? What is your truest love of comedy? Uh, I mean, being on stage would probably be the simple answer. Having grown up on stage and always wanting to be in front of people, being winning a drama award in grade nine and always just wanting to be performing, always wanted to perform. But there is this moment when you've got an audience really loving what you're doing. I have when when they you can sit on a joke and you can sit on a punchline and it'll get a couple of different laughs, like the laugh at it once. And then they're really enjoying this stuff. Um, I have a, one of my favorite new jokes is uh, if you don't think the patriarchy exists, if you don't think men have called the shots for way too long. There was a woman in the 1950s who invented a device that would help you retrieve your canned goods from the back of your cupboard or pantry. You just spun a tray and you grabbed your cream corn. Did they call her innovative, Susan? <laughs> and <laughs> oh, that's and when, you, when you've got an audience buying into your sensibilities, when they're on board with what it is you're doing, and when you've got them laughing so hard, and afterwards, you'll think about maybe I made somebody's day better. Maybe somebody came in here mm. carrying some burden or, or, you know, some problem that we got to take that away from. That's not what you're thinking at that moment when you're on stage. There's a moment when somebody finishes laughing really hard and they go, ah, that moment, that moment in comedy, that and number two, a close second is when somebody slaps the table. When somebody laughs so hard that you hear them slap the table, those two moments are the moments when. I think that was it. That was what that that was the essence, the soul. That was the DNA of what I love about this thing is that you hear ah, and you're like, gotcha. Like that is my that's my that's my favorite. Yeah. Well, that's generosity too, though. You know, that's giving. And in a in a heavy world, you bring lightness to people's lives. And I guess there's no better example of bringing that lightness than your military tours you've done. Tell me about that giving back. It's going to sound cliche, but I think that the greatest honor of my entire career is entertaining the military. And the idea that while everybody owes a debt of gratitude to the men and women who have served before and are serving and will serve comedians owe them a little more i often think about the fact that they charged up hills risking their lives giving their lives so that i could stand on a stage and have the freedom to say the things that i wanted to say so everybody owes them something but comedians owe them just a little more so when I did Kuwait and Iraq twice, um, we did 24 bases the first time, and then we got caught in a sandstorm the second time. So we only did 12 bases the second year. And then we had done uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, in a country called Kyrgyzstan, which there's no not even a base there anymore. We were the last comedy show before that base left Kyrgyzstan. And then to do a show in Izmir, Turkey, on Canada Day, 2019 standing on the back of the hmcs toronto a canadian naval frigate was truly one of the greatest honors of my career and then there was a show that i had wanted 
for 10 years. And every interview I ever did, they're like, what should you want to do? And I would always say, Canadian Forces Station Alert, CFS Alert. It's the northernmost manned outpost on the planet. Wow. So uh, uh, in December of 2019, I had the honor of flying on a Herc from CFB Trenton to Thule, Greenland. And then I didn't know what country owns Greenland. I should have. I consider myself a bit of a geography buff, but I didn't know that Denmark owns Greenland. I had no idea. I stamped my passport Denmark. And I was like, what? We're, we're in Denmark? And then from Thule, Greenland, where you spend the night, to CFS alert, and you are a few hundred miles from the North Pole, and to do a show up there for the military serving up there, we did a few shows, and there, I was with a great band out of Kingston uh, called Ambush, just amazing. Those, while it's nice to bring some joy to those military bases, what you learn when you're touring Iraq and Kuwait is that you're just getting them 90 minutes closer to home. You're there, you know, they watch movies when they're not on missions, they try and keep themselves busy. And when you go there, you're providing them, I thought we're gonna bring them a feeling of home or you're moving them an hour and a half, two hours closer to being home. And there's this reprieve and this joy and they are so appreciative. Mike Birbiglia has a fantastic line where he says, these people have been gone from America so long, they don't know I'm not famous. Because they, they line up to get your autograph and they take pictures. <laughs> so you sign hundreds and hundreds of autographs and thank you for coming. We sure appreciate you. Thank you for coming. And what I said when I was in Kuwait and Iraq, there's no alcohol on any of the bases. I said to them, if I ever see you, you see my show somewhere where I can buy you a drink, come up and tell me and I will pay for your drinks for the rest of the night. And I was working on a cruise ship and a military guy came up and said, I saw you in Iraq. And I never mentioned that outside of Iraq. So you would have had to have seen me in Iraq. And he came up and said, I was one of the you know, troops that you performed to in Iraq. And I said, belly up to the bar. And he goes, no, I didn't come over here for that. And I said, doesn't matter. To be able to bring them some laughter, there is, there, that is the greatest honor of my life, truly. Lars, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy life to do this today. And I think uh, I'm guessing that all the listeners probably feel like they're your friend now. They are. Um, I follow everybody back on social media. Um, it's super easy to find. If people are on uh, TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, if you guys are still on Twitter, but you go to extra, like the word extra, E-X-T-R-A, extra, and then Lars. Um, so you can go to Instagram, you follow extra Lars, I will follow you back, and then you could unfollow me and you'll gain a follower. It'll be pretty sweet. <laughs> That's devious. I, I'm gonna yeah, stay I'm good. gonna stay a follower, I promise. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to see where you go from here. And and what happens with you and Silver too? Who knows where that relationship could go? A million. Going to a million. <laughs> It's a white knuckle express, baby. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Canadian Love Map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter. We love sharing love stories of all kinds, and that could include yours. So do you or someone you know have an uplifting tale to tell? Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram using at Canadian Love Map or email producer at podstarter.io. 
We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map.